Welcome to The Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. Hello, I'm Michael Scott, and welcome to the Drummer's Pathway podcast. Throughout the years, there is music that has become so timeless that in essence, it becomes part of the soundtrack to our lives. There are songs that evoke emotion, and others that have an energy and groove so powerful and infectious that it makes us react with joy. Songs can tell the story, which takes us back to certain times in our lives, and often may empower us to overcome challenges that we may be facing. Although some of the music we encounter may be iconic, we may not always know or appreciate the contribution of the musicians behind our favorite songs. My guest today is drummer Liberty DeVito. For 30 years, Liberty was the driving force behind the legendary Billy Joel. Known for his intense drive and New York swagger, he has created the grooves, to multiple platinum Billy Joel albums that have gone on to sell over 150 million copies. He also went on to work as a session drummer for a variety of other artists, including Meatloaf, Paul McCartney, Karen Carpenter, and Stevie Nicks. In 2020, he released his memoir, Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness, which is an honest reflection of following and fulfilling your dream and an inside look at the music and career of Billy Joel. Today, Liberty continues to work with a variety of artists, including the Lords of 52nd Street and the Slim Kings, and spends much of his time encouraging other drummers to follow their passions. In our interview, we talk about the value of finding your own voice as a musician, even when you are faced with discouragement why it's essential to always put the song first when creating the perfect drum parts, and the importance of remaining true to yourself and continue to find joy in your life despite the challenges that you may encounter. Let's get started. So, Liberty, it's an absolute honor and pleasure having you on my show today. Well, thanks, man. It's great to be here. Good to be here. As a musician... You are highly regarded for not only your energetic and passionate performances, but also revered for your commitment to, our, to creating iconic drum parts that not only enhance and elevate the music, but also instills emotion. What were your early inspirations that influenced your approach to music and what gravitated you towards the drums in the first place? Well, to be honest with you, to start with what gravitated me towards the drums, I've always loved music. But um, I, I had no intention of playing the drums. Uh, I just used to sing along when I rode my bicycle, like when I was eight, ten years old and stuff like that. But uh, my parents bought me drums uh, because my cousin was selling them. And my dad thought, well, you know, I asked him later on, I said, why did you, why did you buy me drums? And he said, because they didn't make Prozac when you were a kid. So, <laughs> so uh, I got these drums and I joined the sixth grade school band. And uh, I couldn't do the buzz roll in the Star Spangled Banner. You know, it goes all the way through. And uh, the teacher said, put the sticks down, DeVito. You'll never do anything with the drums. So I was frustrated, kind of pushed the drums off to the side, maybe played a little bit, wouldn't play in front of anybody. But then when the Beatles came on the Ed Sullivan Show in 1964, I was 13 years old. 
just about to be 14. And um, I pointed at the screen and I said, that's what I want to do. I, I forget the buzz roll. I want to do what that guy's doing right there. I want to play music that I love and tour the world with my friends. You know, so that that's how I got started. Then I got tennis to the drums seriously. One of the things that you do talk about in your book as well is your formal experience as a drummer consisted of a bad experience at school and one private lesson where you went in and you talked about you wanted to learn how to play drums like Ringo Starr and I believe your teacher commented why do you want to play drums like Ringo he's not very good and that pretty much ended your formal lesson education as a drummer and then from there yeah. you went on and learned how to play by becoming a musician and playing along with records. So you took that approach. Yeah, well, the thing was that the, he was teaching me jazz, and I, I didn't want to learn jazz. I, like I said, I wanted to be like that guy that I saw on the Ed Sullivan show. Uh, so um, I had a, a, records became my books. And um, so when I would sit down and put on a Beatle album, I would uh, try to play along with it, you know, do what Ringo was doing. And a lot of the stuff like, uh, I saw her standing there and things like that. It was too fast for me at the time. But um, as I was playing along with the songs, I would kind of get lost because I, I, I'm not reading music and I don't know how to write out the chart if I'm listening to the record. So what I did was I listened to the lyrics to the song. So I would sing along with it as I was playing and I would know where I was. And the funny thing was that as I was singing along with the song, I knew a fill was coming up when I would stop singing you know, and I realized, hey, the fill, Ringo does a film when Paul stops singing. Or Ringo does a film to take the band into a more exciting place like the bridge or a chorus, you know. So I took that same attitude into the studio with Billy Joel, and I would get his lyrics. And I would want to know what he's singing about, what the story is, because that would, would dictate what I was going to play. You know, uh, you play a song uh, just the way you are, a little different than you play Angry or Mad. You know, you, you can bash on Angry or Mad, but just the way you are is a sensitive love song, you know. So that that's what I did. I learned, as I was listening to the Beatles songs and learning how to play the drums, I was also learning music because I was listening to everything everybody else was doing and where the drums fit. One of the things that I know that I went through in my early development years as, as a musician, and then even at the early stages of my professional career, is I tended to listen to music as a drummer. As I matured and started to do more session work, I started to listen to music as a musician. As you said, it's really important to, to take the time to learn what the lyrics are, what the words are, what the emotion is behind that song. And that's going to dictate the parts that you play. I remember a couple of years back, I had got hired to record an album for a local artist. Um, and I, had, I think we had 16 songs we had to do. And we had a day and a half in the studio to record all the bed tracks. And so we had a couple of rehearsals, went through. Rehearsals went really well, but I was really concerned about the arrangements of things and making sure that I did a good job. On the way to the studio, I was listening to one of the demos for one of the songs on it, which was a ballad, and I paid attention to the words. And by the time I got to the studio, I was practically in tears because I was so moved by the message behind the song that it dramatically yeah. shifted 
the whole approach to how I approach that session. And even though the part may be simplistic in comparison to some of the other things, it's by far, I think, one of the strongest tracks on the record. And at that point, I realized just how important the, the words and the music and the message is. And I think that's essential for a lot of musicians to take the time to realize that. And you were very fortunate that you actually realized that early on in your development as a drummer, which is one of the things that I think has always been a blessing for the artists that you have worked yeah. with. Well, I learned at, a, at like I said, at a very young age. And, you know, um, the, the job of the drummer isn't just to show off and do every lick that they have. It's, it's you're an extension of the guy who wrote the song. He's hiring you because he can't play the drums. He's either playing piano or guitar or singing or something. And he wants you to emphasize what he's, what he's putting across, the story that he's putting across. So you have to come up with a part that doesn't override him. It doesn't bury the lyrics. And, and so that then you become creative like that. You know, it's a, it's a fun process. Like you said, you listened in the car and you got the words like, Oh my God, you know, I get it now. And you, and I always tell kids like when you listen to a record, usually young drummers are like, ah, that guy stinks. I don't like what he played on that record. Oh, this guy stinks. I don't like what he played on that record. You know, or this guy's great. Wow. He did this fast lick and stuff like that. I'm like, no, listen to something like ACDC and just listen to Phil Rudd. And he's just playing boom. God, boom, God, boom, God. Ask yourself, it's so simple. Why does it feel so good? Why does it make me feel good what he's doing? The simplicity of it makes me feel so good, you know? Well, and music is meant to instill uh, emotion in people, whether that be sadness, joy, um, anger, um, sorrow or a whole bunch of different aspects as well too and not only the lyrics but how the music actually makes one feel when I was a kid you know I had been playing I started playing drums when I was 11 and I learned in school and I started taking private lessons when I was 15 and so I've kind of had a bit more of a formal background but amongst all of the lessons that I've learned and all the exercises that I've done, which have really been valuable to me as a professional um, over the years, some of the biggest joys that I got in developing passion for music was actually sitting in my music room when I was when I was a kid, putting records what? on on the record player and playing along with them. In particular, one of the albums that got the most play for me that just really lifted my spirit and my soul was glass houses there was there was something about that record that was so infectious in terms of the parts that you played that i just couldn't stop playing along with them because it wasn't that the parts were complicated it was how the music made me feel um and when i look back to that right. that's really what started to teach me what the power behind drums are you can go onto youtube you can see you know, thousands of videos of people playing a million notes, and there is validity to a lot of the things that they do. But, but well, it sure. doesn't instill the emotion in people the same way that something as simple as a song exceptionally well played can really bring to that experience. And that's something that you have done exceptionally well 
throughout your career? You see, I I, I look at uh, those great drummers like uh, Gav and and Weckl and uh, Caluda uh, and those guys. To me, it's like looking at a buffet when you go to a buffet. They do things that I'll sit and I'll watch and then I'll go, oh, I like what he just did there. I'm going to try to put that into my thing. You know, just grab a little thing. And kind of because I, I can't read and I have to figure out what he did, and I'll probably do it wrong, but it'll feel great and, and it'll become mine, you know? Because, you know, like I said in the book, uh, uh, good drummers borrow, but great drummers steal. That's, a, that's what we do. We take from each other. Once we record something, you can play it as much as you want and do whatever you want with it, you know, because it's not really ours. We're giving it away to the artist for a fee and then anybody can you know copy one of the things that i also found when i was growing up is that there was a lot of beatles music played in my house and so i really learned to appreciate that music and 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 it became sort of a soundtrack to aspects of my life but as a drummer i didn't pay a lot of attention to it at the time because it wasn't as impressive and that's just not where i was looking to to go later on I ended up getting hired to play some shows where we were celebrating the music of the Beatles. And we, over a period of years, I had to go back and learn, I believe it's about 10 Beatles albums in their entirety. And there's a lesson in musicality that will value anyone that puts in the time. Because you look at Ringo's performance and you think it's easy and you think it's simple, but there's a swing and a groove to the stuff that he plays that you can't replicate. Part of no. that is, yes, he's a left-handed drummer playing a right-handed kit, so I'm sure that will have aspects in terms of how that music will feel. But one of the things that I found is I would look at the stuff and go, oh, yeah, this will be easy. And I played some of these songs for years, and it wasn't until I could really find the way and to get that little swing that that Ringo does that the music actually became joyful because just playing the part without the right feel doesn't bring joy it's you just you know there's something wrong but you just can't quite put your finger on it and it's really just a matter of gaining that respect for the for those musicians and and valuing the genius of the parts that they came up with in the first place rather than trying to reinvent them Right. Well, well, what Ringo was great at, and what you know, a lot of the great drummers, the session drummers, and stuff like that, is they know when not to give away something until a certain part of the song. Hold on to it because it's going to build the song. You build the song till the end, you know. So don't do that lick that was great at the end in the beginning because you gave it away already. Yeah, you know. So Ringo really knew how to do that. Ringo really knew how to how to take a verse and then, a, then bring it into a chorus and then the bridge play something different on it. You know, Sergeant Pepper has some great stuff on it. My favorite is getting better when, uh, when, when he plays, you know, almost straight on the, on the bass drum and, and he just hits a snare, boom, bah, boom, psh, boom, bah, you know, he doesn't, and then goes into the shuffle. Let's get team back to roll, you know? So he builds into the shuffle. Which which is it just magical because then you feel like that that release of of the, the the chorus like oh yeah 
you know. I find too that when people are playing these old classic songs, but they're not really going back to analyze the original performance, you have the tendency to feel that there's a lot more going on than there actually is. And so people will tend to put fills at the end of every four to eight bars because that's what you're supposed to do. And then you go back and realize there is no fill until the third verse. By then you've already gone through the whole chorus. And as you said, there's something magical at times about not doing that and really holding that moment to the end. If you play it at the beginning and then you keep repeating that throughout, it's no longer going to have the same impact. It's just something that people are hearing, but it's not really capturing their attention. Right. Unless it's it's a, a definite part that becomes like the beginning of uh, uh, Come Together. Mm-hmm. You know, and it repeats that. That becomes a piece you know, that's almost like a guitar lick and uh, that they repeat in the song, you know. I'll tell you what, one of the, um, when, I, when I play with a top 40 band or something, sit in with some bands, the hardest drummer to mimic for me is Charlie Watts and the Rolling Stones because his playing is so precise and so to what Keith is doing that I find that I can't throw any Liberty DeVito in there. I can't put it in. You know, because you have to stick to what he's playing because mm-hmm. it's all about his feel, you know. And on the records, I mean, it's great sound on his drums, too. He's got a great sound on his drums. But that little four-piece kit, he does amazing things with it, you know, just the feel to the record. And I think what makes Charlie's grooves feel so good is that it's an extension of his personality. It's just not playing the part. He's playing charlie watts you know and they can have all of these other things that are being thrown at him that you know that would distract many musicians where they want to play off of but he's he's got his part he's playing what he feels and he's content to not let anything else get in the way and and i've seen the rolling stones a number of times and there's so much stuff going on but the the solid railroad train of their performance is not really anyone else in the band. It's just Charlie Watts sitting on stage being Charlie Watts and um, and his humble nature, you know, as, as a human being and as a musician just makes that commitment to what he's doing just once again, also very magical. Yeah, well, people people say all the time, like the, the guy that plays drums with Billy now at Madison Square Garden, people will go see them play and, and they'll say, uh, Billy was good, but but the, the drummer's he's, he's not you. And I said, of course he's not me. That's exactly it. He's a great drummer, but he didn't grow up on Long Island. He didn't. His mother didn't make sauce in the morning. <laughs> you know, his father wasn't a policeman. He didn't live. He didn't grow up one town away from Billy Joel, so he could relate to everything that was going on around him when Billy wrote songs about it. You know, so he's not me. Don't compare him to me. You know, there's a New York swagger in your groove that I think is one of the things that I, I've always really admired and respected about that. It's it's precise. Um, it's accurate. It's it's not overly complex, but it means business and it it commands attention. Um, I remember a friend of mine, he had gone to see you play on the Stormfront tour. And and he said the whole entire, I think he was 
up close to the front and he said the whole entire time he could not stop watching you play and he goes and i believe there's one point in the show where i think you had hit the snare drum so hard i think you ended up putting your stick through the whole entire drum and he said i had no idea that liberty devito played drums so hard and, and he was such a loud player but it's not a matter of loud not in the context of thing it's a matter right. of that's that's your new york your swagger you mean business but at the same time too you're instilling the power in your performance but there's also a beautiful sensitivity to a lot of the other things that you do and it's not just dictated by the point that you're trying to make it's very much controlled by your commitment to making that music shine in the way that it's intended yeah and you know it's it's I'm, I'm not going to say it's difficult, but it was it was a challenge to play with a piano player because piano players are all over the place, you know. So the the simpler you are, the the more the piano player can play. I mean, between me and the bass, the bass had a hard time because because Billy played with his left hand too, you know, and and so the bass had to stay out of the way of the left hand. You know, you you think about all that stuff when you're in the studio. I remember when we first did moving out. The song moving out was the first song we recorded when we got with Phil Ramon. We're in the studio, and Billy wanted the song to go, uh, uh, to the drum part to go, Phil came to the front of the drums and goes, no, listen to me now. This is what people want to hear. Boom. Boom. That's what they want to hear. That's all they want to hear. Anything else you do, you're enhancing it. That. You know, you start there. I am um, one of the sort of top 40 bands that I was working with for a while. We ended up covering some Billy Joel uh, material. And one of the songs we did was moving out. And I remember thinking this is a song I have loved for decades that has a feel and a groove to it that just always has inspired me partly because of the the simplistic aspect but also because of the swagger behind it there's there's yeah. there's um an unmistakable liberty devito feel to this and there's not <laughs> a lot of really complex parts um in the you know and then when you get in the chorus elements you're playing a lot of quarter notes on the ride cymbal and what makes it so good is the space that you actually leave in that song and there's a few little things like the little hi-hat bark kind of things as well too that yeah. are actually extremely difficult to play because they're just they're so subtle but they're things that you, you just take for granted but yet are so essential to those parts of the music that you you have to put the time in to really to really get it right or it's just it's just not the experience that you intended it to be well that's that that song in particular the the verse is like is like bum, bum, ba, da, 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 da. and then the chorus goes is that what it's all about and it got that feel to it you know so it changes that feel right in the middle of the song which was fun <laughs> you were very fortunate for I believe it was six albums that you did with Billy to get a chance to work with legendary producer Phil Ramone. And I think that the albums that he produced were really the iconic ones from that whole period. And I'd be curious in terms of 
what it was like working with Phil. And then in your book, one of the things that I love is you go through each album and each track discussing those experiences. Don't worry, we're not going to go through all of the tracks, and everything, <laughs> but I would like to reflect back on some of your experiences on some of those different albums, because there's stylistically elements in the band that changed. I would be interested in kind of your perspective about those times. So the first album you did was Turnstiles, which was not produced by Phil Ramone. Right. Um, so right. after that, you went on to do The Stranger, which became probably one of the most successful albums in history at this point, and one of those iconic Desert Island discs for myself. It's an album I just treasure. I, th I think it, I would classify it to me as almost a perfect record. But that was the first time that he had a chance to work with Phil. We've already talked about moving out, but what were some of the other influences that he had on kind of guiding the band throughout the process for the album The Stranger? Well, I Phil Phil was so great. Phil, uh, he he was like, he was the guy behind the glass. You need that guy behind the glass because a lot of bands never get out of the basement because they're never satisfied with what they do. Phil, when we started, would play a song and we're doing a take. If it was the right take, Phil would be sitting, listening in the beginning, and then he'd stand up and he would start to move, which would show us this is it. This, this is the one. He loves this. Keep going, keep going, keep going. We called him Uncle Phil because <laughs> he, he was that close, you know, with, with us. We were like a family in there. And, um, yeah, he he believed in us. When we did get it right the first time, I I couldn't get it right the first time. <laughs> I loved the story in the book, by the way. So. Yeah, yeah. When it when it says, uh, you know, we did move it out, then we tried to get it right the first time. We did a stranger, then we tried to get it right the first time. I couldn't get it. I went to Phil and I said, you know what? Why don't you just get Gad and those guys to play it? And he said, no, you're going to get it. You're going to do this. You know, so he believed that what was in us in the same way that that, you know, we were a band, me, Doug, Russell and um, uh, this other guy, Howie Emerson. We were a band called Topper before we were with Billy. So we played together. Billy didn't make us great. He, he saw the greatness in us. You know, and he knew that if he included us with him, it would be great. The only piece that was missing when he got us on turnstiles was Phil, because he needed that one more piece. Well, and I, I think I have read this before, that one of the things about working with Phil Ramone is he wasn't a producer that came in that had a vision to say, here's Billy, here's the artist, I need to mold the record that I have in my head. He was very much a champion for the bad. He wanted the band. It yes. wasn't just about, you know, bringing in the right session musicians. He's like, no, th this is a band. And he treated his whole tenure over this time as it's about the band. It's not about Billy and finding people to come in with the right parts. And I think that is one of the things that made Phil Ramone so essential in this whole experience. Yeah, he came to see us play at Carnegie Hall uh, we were on the Turnstiles tour and um, we, we were doing just the way you are. And I think she sort of dying restaurant at the time. Uh, and he, when we first went in the studio, he says, he said, I want you guys to play like the animals that you are, you know, <laughs> <laughs> play like that. But then he, he honed us into this uh, tightly knit 
you know, what, what made pop records and made uh, Billy famous, you know, because after we did the turnstiles, we had a bunch of guys that came in the crew on the turnstiles tour. And once we did the stranger and those guys heard us and then we went back on the road again, they, they said, the album is great. You played great on it. It sounds like somebody tied your testicles to the <laughs> drum seat so you couldn't get up and, you know, but you still had that, that strength and energy and creativity. Looking at the stranger, what are some of the standout tracks that are still most meaningful to you? I got to remember what tracks are on the stranger. <laughs> uh, let me see. Uh, Moving out, the stranger, just the way you are, which I know is a song that none of you actually really no. wanted to play. It ended up becoming the song that made this album so iconic. Yes. Um, scene from an Italian restaurant, Vienna, which I think ah. is an, a highly underrated yes. track. I think it's one of the most beautiful and one of the most powerful songs I think Billy ever did. Only the Good Die Young, which I believe was actually originally a reggae song. That, um, it was. That um you and i believe paul simon actually had yeah. a perspective that you needed to take it in a different direction yeah well um you know i didn't want to play reggae the, the, the reggae stuff with that uh, yeah, billy actually wrote it on a guitar as a, as a reggae song so we got in the studio and he was on the piano it just sounded awful you know uh so i was like i i, I don't want to let's not do that and and Paul Simon, actually, I could see him through the glass. And his whole idea was the lyrics are so heavy in that song. I mean, it's about, you know, hey, hey Virginia, when, you, when you're ready, yeah. call me. You know, I'm the yeah. guy that's going to be the person. So um, Paul said, if you have a swinging rhythm, the lyrics would just go over everybody's head. They won't even know what you're saying. You know, so I started to play with my brushes. And I went back to, like I say in the book, um, uh, Up From the Skies on the Axis Boulders Love album by Jimi Hendrix. And it has that same swing. You know, we were a little quicker, but in the beginning lick that I do, that's the way Up From the Skies starts too. And I remembered that. And I was like, oh, okay, I got it. I got it. This is what we should do. Is that why it. you played the song with brushes in the first place? Is it's because yeah. of the Hendrix track? Yes. Yeah. Um, but later on, you went back to sticks when you were playing that song live. Well, it was hard to, to uh, you know, reproduce it on stage in a yes. coliseum and stuff. Yeah. So after The Stranger, the follow up was 52nd Street. What was the experience like making that record in comparison to The Stranger? Well, Billy always um, he always has a, I won't say it's a theme, but he always has a different way of doing an album. Like The Stranger uh, it was a bunch of pop songs, Only Good Day Young, Seems to Sign Restaurant. The 52nd Street now became more of a, of a jazzy thing, like, like Zanzibar. We actually yep. get to play a swing thing in the middle. And I mean, you know, thank goodness I played weddings for two and a half years because you had to play all kinds of music. Because when he threw that, it was like, oh my God, we're going to play a, a swing jazz thing here, you know? And uh, I remember the, the first break in that song, uh, I'm using brushes, I'm swinging with brushes. Because if you listen closely, you can actually hear me 
take my sticks and put them on the floor, Tom, and pick up the brushes. You could hear it. They left it on the track, you know. So that that was very uh, memorable. And also, Until the Night is on that, that album, too. That one, I, I can remember Billy having it and coming in and, and showing it to us. And it was like, it was feeling so good that was like, you know, okay, okay, let's let's record it. Let's record it. And I'm thinking to myself, but I don't know how it goes yet, you know? And I'm really surprised that that I made it through. And what I feel is a mis- I made a mistake in the song is when uh, 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 when they're closing it down, da, 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 uh, I'm playing boom. When and I go into straight time a little before I probably should have. But it sounded great. It was a mistake that sounded really, really good. You know, so that that's I love that tune. Sometimes it's the mistakes that we document. Oh, yeah. Throughout our career that actually become those iconic moments in the music. And then it almost doesn't sound right without it. Right. The follow up to 52nd Street took the band in a completely different direction. And that's Glass Houses, which really, it's like a garage band, sort of punk influenced type of album. And I know that wasn't originally, I think the direction that Billy was looking to go into, but you had gone to see the police and you were really inspired by that energy of that band. And you had come back and you had said to Billy, hey, you got to check this out. And I think he was a little bit hesitant, but I think because of that experience, um, that album has this energy that really the previous album didn't have quite the same number of moments for that one, but it's also an album that is probably simpler in terms of some of the parts and things, but it's just such a powerful record. As I had said earlier, you know, the glass houses was one of my influential records that I would spend hours in my basement, putting the record on, putting my headphones on and playing along with them. Um, the opening track, You May Be Right, to me, one of the greatest little subtle things that that you do in that one is close to the end of it, you play a snare drum shot that is an offbeat shot rather than everything just being sort of straight ahead on sort of two and four. And I right. remember that, that that's the uh, save it for the end. Save it. Don't give it away too early. <laughs> and I remember learning this song in a top 40 band years ago and i was so excited because it was a song i didn't think i'd get a chance to play it was by Uh far one of the most popular songs of the evening every single show that we play it's a song that people just love so much you might not be on their list of songs that they always go to request but when it's played it just brings people back into that time and i remember in rehearsal being so excited because i got to play that offbeat snare shot and i remember the band looking at me going are you sure that's right and i'm like i am a thousand percent confident that that is there and it's going to be there every time we play that because that's the iconic moment that really just kind of captures that attention it's just a straight ahead song but it's just so powerful and like i said earlier it's got that sort of new york sort of liberty devito i'm gonna make a point i'm here i'm gonna get a reaction from you kind of swagger you know that 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 song is is kind of like a curse because, like you said, everybody loves mm-hmm. that song. And anytime I go somewhere and they, hey, Lib, you want to sit in? We'll do a Billy Joel tune. 
Okay, what do you want? What's in you want to do? You may be right. That's the one they wanted to. Sometimes a fantasy, also a great straight ahead sort of mm. rock and roll song. Don't ask me why, which is the third track on the album, to me almost sounds stylistically like it should have been on The Stranger. It's, it's got kind of a simple sort of percussion sort of track over top of that sort of quarter note sort of bass yeah. drum part, but it kind of fits in to some of the early stuff. But it also is brilliant in the simplicity. I'm not even sure you play snare drum in that song at all. I think it's basically bass drum yeah. and some percussion parts over time. It's not even bass. It's not even bass drum. It's just maracas in my right hand, and the, and the bass drum part was on the floor tom hitting it with a stick, because at the time uh, David Brown couldn't hear me because the maracas, you know, and he was in a booth, but he came out of the booth and sat right next to me, and they hooked them uh, and played acoustic guitar, played the rhythm, so when they went to mix the song, they would pull out the guitar and the drums would sound terrible. And, and then when they put the guitar back in and took out the drums, the guitar would sound terrible. So they had to mix both the guitar and the drums together, you know, so it would have the, the, the good sound. So that, that was interesting to, to play that type of thing. It was like that, that song was so like, it shouldn't have a two and four. It shouldn't, you know, it should just have a you know, no no boom, boom. doesn't need it you know the other hit from that record is uh, it's still rock and roll to me which has just got this great sort of shuffle groove that's really quite powerful but as you said there's always that wait till the end moment there's a a fill that you play in it that goes from the triplet shuffle into the 16th notes which is very reminiscent right. of alan white's performance in instant karma let me tell you i don't know if it's in the book but yeah i saw uh, alan and i said you know, I, I took that, I got that lick from you, and it's the karma. And he just had to put his hand out like he wanted money, <laughs> you know, jokingly. But yeah, that, that's where that came from. But what's yeah. cool about it is that it creates a temporary tension in the music that um, just yes. sort of captures you, which allows the listener to then kind of refocus on kind of what the, what the song is, is kind of directing you towards. So I, I think it's, it's simple, it's subtle, but it's also brilliantly placed. And there's also no symbols except for when he mm -hmm. does the chorus. I mean, the, yeah, the bridge. Doesn't matter what they say in the paper and the and the sax solo. There's then just no other, there's no symbols in that you know no crash symbols. You have stated in numerous interviews and I believe you discussed this in your book that if you look back over your career with Billy, if you had to pick one album that you considered to be your favorite, it actually was the Nylon Curtain. Yes. Why is the Nylon Curtain? your favorite Billy Joel album? Well, we all grew up uh, under the Beatles shrine, you know. Uh, so the Nylon Curtain is more or less a, a tip of the hat to the Beatles. And it was interesting because, you know, uh, Glass Houses was just a rock album that the band recorded, and then we can play everything live. We just go out and play it live. When we went in to record uh, the Nylon Curtain, Billy said to us, don't even think about how you're going to reproduce this on stage. Just whatever the song needs, that's what we're going to do. It doesn't matter if, if it's like, oh, I don't know how we're going to do that live. Don't, don't matter. If it needs it, we're doing it. 
So that's why that that was really interesting. I mean, uh, Scandinavian skies when it goes on the plane, and I put the boom, 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 boom. I had to do that like four times, you know, just to make that big sound, you know. So, um, and that that was one of the the times that I thought, wow. Maybe I wish I was a reader right now because I could have written what I did and did it again. But I had to remember everything I did, you know. But that was that was fun. And and in in the song Laura, mm-hmm. uh, to me, when when David Brown is doing his solo and Billy's just singing the Oz, I I have to stop myself and go, is, is this the Beatles I'm listening to? Or is it you know? Well, I remember. Years ago, you and I had actually spent a fair bit of time just chatting back and forth over Messenger, and we had got into um, numerous discussions about the Beatles. And the song Laura was actually a track that you had said, hey, this is essentially us trying to be the Beatles. Right. And, so I, and, and because I hadn't listened to that album for a long time, I remember taking it, putting that song on and going, oh, my God, now I can't hear this without the Beatles influence. But it's not a ripoff. It's, no. it's sort of a, a, a tip of of the hat right. um, to show respect to that influence and it, it's just a beautiful track now you had said that billy wasn't concerned about how you were going to pull this off live and you you've ended up pulling these songs off live for years but how did you create the industrial almost kind of like pipe sound in allentown part of it is actually a, a pile drive right but it just wasn't intense enough so um I, we had these two percussion cases that, that must have been about four feet long and, and, you know, about two feet deep. And they were filled with maracas and tambourines. We, we rented them from SIR, which is Studio Instrument Rentals down here. And uh, I went out and, and put two of them in my hand. And when it went, dun, 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 I jumped up in the air and came down with them. And it made such a great sound. <laughs> but destroyed everything that was in the cases. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm assuming when you played the song live, it's, it's a sample that's probably either played on a recording or uh, something that one yeah, of the keyboard players would have to trigger. That they use. <laughs> no. As we're going through this, is that each album kind of follows a bit of a different direction. After Nylon Curtain was followed up with the with an Innocent Man, which also became a really successful record. You had said before that that album was almost your tip of the hat to like Motown and soul music, and that was kind of the spirit that you were looking at for that particular recording. Yeah, it was like these are these are the songs, tip of the hat to the songs that we grew up listening to. Before we became these professional musicians, this is this this is where we learned how to play. This is what we listened to. This is where Billy learned harmonies. This is where, you know, I learned how to play the simple drum things. You know, and and uh, we would actually take uh, like uh, the Drifters uh, uh, under the boardwalk, mm-hmm. you know, and, and listen to the forty five, and then do Innocent Man, you know, because it had that same boom. You know that same thing. Uh, so yeah, and up, uh, Uptown Girl, Frankie Valley even called us. You know, from the Four Seasons, called us, <laughs> called Phil Ramone and said, "Why can't somebody write a song like that for me?" <laughs> I believe I had also read too that a lot of the 
that album is actually played more live in the studio in comparison to some of the other records as oh, well, yeah. in order to make in order to maintain that that vibe and for the the opening track on the record which is easy money which was recorded for a rodney dangerfield film yeah um had sort of an extended band in it you know in addition to the core band there was also pretty renowned session musicians on that as well too but i think most of that song is recorded collectively live off the floor all of it right live off the floor uh it was myself doug uh russell i think went into the the booth to sit with phil uh we had uh cornell dupree was was playing um uh guitar was it called was it him or somebody else uh one of those guys one of those uh richard t played the piano Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Leon Von Darvis played the organ. We had a horn section, uh, girl singers, um, and uh, Billy was in a booth just singing. You know, so yeah, it was right. Kept right. We played that night. That was the record. Eric Eric Gale was the guitar player. Eric Gale. To me, the first track that really captured my attention on that record, and I remember, and I still own it, was I, I have the 45 record of it, was Tell Her About It, which I think, I don't know if it was the first single off, off the album, but that's another one of those songs I've listened to that was just really infectious, even in its simplicity. I, I just, I found from a groove standpoint, it's not an easy song to play. Oh, you know, it's funny because... Uh... My first instinct, this was one of the only songs, Billy had about two songs written by the time we went in the studio for Innocent Man, and this was one of them. So I already knew that it was, the story is like, uh, 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 like he's talking to somebody else, like the Supremes used to do that kind of thing and stuff like that. And the whole Motown feel was just bouncing on the snare drum with a straight four bass drum jump. But the guys in the band were like, oh, no, let's try something different. Why don't you play this? It's like it went all around the room. Everybody had an opinion of what it should be. And then it came back to me. And that's what it ended up being when I first played. One of the things about soul music and the music of Motown is that the, the fidelity of it, when you're listening to the records, it's hard to make out what those drummers are doing right. because rather than having isolated and mixed and all bring up the bass drum, a lot of times they they put one microphone on the drum set maybe two right and so you don't you don't know what they played you just have to recreate the feel right and i think that's one of the things that's sort of magical about that is that you have to interpret it and part wise you may not know what the part is but you will know when it creates that feel yeah and i knew that that if I played the whole thing, you know, the, the, the right hand and the left hand on the snare drum, it would give that more of that feel, you know, like the old rock and roll guys when they play all on the snare drum, you know, it gives mm -hmm. that feel. It, it, if you play on the snare drum an old rock and roll beat and then go to the hi-hat, it just changes everything, you know? Now, the follow-up to that particular album was The Bridge, which was also a bit of a different sort of experience because at that point, it was a much harder and less joyful album to make yeah. at times. But there was also 
a number of guests in them. I believe Billy actually co-wrote a song with Cindy Lauper on yes. the album that I think he would not have finished if it wasn't for that collaboration. No, he had a log jam in his head and he just could not come up with lyrics. And Cindy came into the studio one day and said, oh, oh I can write words for this. And he said, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I also know one of the highlights for you about the recording of, of the bridge album is that one of the guests on it is actually Steve Winwood and yes. one of your favorite musicians and that, that really inspired you when you were a youth was Steve Winwood and traffic and all of those iconic songs from there. So what was that experience like getting a chance to actually not only meet someone that was sort of a childhood hero of yours but actually get a chance to work with him well when he came in the studio you know, billy was a big fan of traffic when i first met billy like i say in the book he was in a band called hassles i was in the new york art shop and we used to watch each other in the same club i was 17 he was 18 and one night he sang colored rain which is on traffic's first album and he was such a big fan of, of traffic. So when Winwood came in, I mean, we, we, we were mimicking traffic all through our career. I mean, there's a stranger, you know, uh, uh, on 52nd street, there's stiletto mm -hmm. and it's got that 16s on the hi-hat and stuff. That's so traffic that feel, you know? So um, when Steve came in, I would say we played a good, three hours of traffic songs with Winwood, <laughs> which was very exciting to do. And he did tell Billy, he goes, I had to look up. I thought Capaldi was playing the drums, you know. That's pretty stunning to get that compliment when you are such a fan of that iconic music. Yeah. I also remember hearing a story that in terms of preparation and stuff, you also ran through Give Me Some Lovin' that I believe Billy was singing, but I believe at one point um, Steve Winwood stopped them to tell him he was actually singing at an octave too low, which is, a, which is a little bit frightening because it's such a hard song to sing in the first place. Yeah, he he was Billy was doing it in in like C or something like that, key of C. And Steve stopped it and said, "No, it's in D." And Billy was like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> the opening track on that album, "Running on Ice," kind of has a bit of a almost like a ska feel. And I remember listening to that one, going, "This sounds like Liberty." pretending to be Stuart Copeland. Exactly. It kind of has that, you know, still aggressive vibe, but with those sort of syncopated sort of rim clicks. And, and I remember that one particularly capturing me at the time because it was unexpected. Yeah, well, that was written for a movie that that uh, uh, Robin Williams was supposed to do. It was called uh, Paradise, something Paradise. And um, they wanted Sting to write the song. But Sting, I think, it was on tour or something. He couldn't do it. So they asked Billy to do it. But they still wanted it in that Sting style. So um, that's why the, the whole uh, police vibe that's there. You know, I, I also use the police vibe, uh, Stuart Copeland vibe on, on Pressure, on the Nylon Curtain album. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that whole halftime in, in, in the verse and then double time in, in the chorus, you know, to pick it up. I think Stuart Copeland was one of the greatest drummers, you know. To me, he's like uh, like Danny Seraphine was. Danny Seraphine took jazz and put it with rock and created this new vibe where Stuart Copeland took 
reggae and, and put it with rock and created this this amazing thing you know that's his own thing which i totally agree with because it's very much him it's kind of like almost like a metamorphosis of his influences and the things that inspired him right. i remember seeing the police on their reunion tour because i never got to see them in their heyday but when they reunited back in in uh 2007 they played toronto four nights they did two nights early on in the tour and then they came back later on and i actually and all of them were incredible shows there was something just magical about getting to see stewart be stewart copeland but i remember enjoying the later shows more partly because they weren't as polished. So at that point, the band had been on the road for a while, but they started to be like the police again. Whereas when they originally yeah. sort of started out, they were learning the songs and playing their songs, and they've all developed as musicians, but they've all developed in different ways. So when you come back, um, you're playing that music that's iconic, but yet you're not the same people that originally played the music you know, 20 years before. And so seeing the band later on kind of started to, you know, bring in some of the old tensions you know allowed them kind of stretch a little bit but that to me is the the police that i like it was just it was that edge people taking risks but but collectively that chemistry of those musicians is just really inspiring and music doesn't always need to be polished it just needs to be sincere you know i don't know if you've uh if you watched that whole beatle documentary with uh called get back you know that yep. the late, the last one uh, the greatest part uh, about that, and, and Russell Javers, who, who was in Billy's band for the longest time, said this to me. He goes, his favorite part was watching the Beatles uh, start to create a new song. But before they did, they went way back to the beginning again and played those old rock and roll songs that they used to play at the Cavern just to get back into that feel of what it felt like to play those songs. And then they started to create the, the new ones, but they never lost touch with where they came from, you know? Well, and, and I think what's so magical about that whole documentary is that for a lot of the documentary, they were pretty bad. Oh yeah. But, but in the end, you know, the music that they made was incredible, but it was just, but I think sometimes people think you, you gather, personalities together in a room that have made this iconic work and i think it's just a matter of everyone gets together and it's just magical it's not it's hard work and over time personalities change sometimes it can push people away um you still need to bring yeah. those things back um but there's still a chemistry there but sometimes it can take a while to reflect back in terms of what made it magical and and i and i actually got great joy out of watching Ringo's boredom, but at the same time, too, during that time, start to develop these incredibly musical, iconic parts, while the tensions of the other members kind of had to bring things back together. And in the end, their rooftop performance was magical because when they got back to that point, which I believe was the last live performance they ever did, when they go back to that right. point, they were a band again. Right. No longer separate personalities. They didn't want to have anything to do with each other. That was all through the documentary, but in the end, they reconnected as musicians and it was joyful. My book where I where I write where I heard this album, this guy sold me an album for two dollars and it would it just said get back Toronto on it on the cover. And Inside, it was the demos of, of what became of the Beatles, 
you know, doing all those songs. That was the album, the album that I had had, I had in, um, in the uh, early seventies was what you saw in the get back movie, you know, where John, uh, uh, you know, was making fun of Teddy boy and, and all yep. that kind of stuff. That was all on, on this album. And that's when I said, okay, they're not as good as you think they are when they start out. It's just, they develop into these great things. And like you said, Ringo was sitting and you could see him listening to everything that was going on, just mm -hmm. sitting there. And then when he got up on the roof, he became Ringo Starr. Yeah. It was like, whoa. <laughs> you know? And what I noticed about watching Ringo is that in the documentary, it almost seems like he's disconnected, but he's not. He's very much aware of everything that's going on in the room. He's just staying out of the way because he understands that there's a, there's a tension there that the other members need to resolve. And so rather than trying to get it in the middle of it, because sometimes when everyone gets in the middle of it, it just makes things worse. So he's very right. much aware and it's almost calculated in a way in terms of his approach to that particular situation. So it's, it's actually quite a fascinating documentary. Well, you know, he, he's aware of the creative process that's going on. Mm -hmm. When Billy would get like that in the studio, Phil would call us on the, on the uh, callback and our headphones would go, okay, why don't you guys come into the control room? And we would all go in the control room and Billy would stay out into the main room of the studio and be working on the song you know, the lyric and, and different chord changes and stuff like that. And then he would come in and go, I think I got it. And then we'd all go back out again and start to create the record. I had also heard that a lot of times, even after, even after Billy had gotten his performance, Phil Ramon would actually still make him play piano while he was recording the vocals because playing singing while playing piano changed how he actually sang the song exactly exactly he, billy would play different if he wasn't playing the piano i mean he'd sing differently phrase mm -hmm. things differently um so phil yes phil would make him play piano again the bridge was the last album that phil ramon had produced with the band the album after that which was stormfront which also was a massively successful album had uh mick jones i think was the producer on it yep much like phil ramon mick was also a fan of the band and in particular you so he very much wanted you to be liberty devito on that record to not so much make it just a straight pop record but to actually still have that edge that's something that you do so masterfully well now it's a different band only me and david brown are in the studio now with billy and now the scala deal playing bass jeff jacobs is playing the second keyboard and um so and this is when crystal comes in crystal telefero and um so it was a new band, but the, the nucleus was me and Billy, you know. And um, so, yeah, uh, I, I, I can remember we, we did a song or two, and then we did Down East for Alexa. And when I was done doing Down East for Alexa, I walked into the control room and mixed it. That's the Liberty DeVito I've been waiting for, you know. Well, and that particular song, which is one of my favorite ones off the record, is very much along the lines of you having to be creative, not because of finding the right groove, but because of giving, being 
given a scenario in terms of the feel that Billy wanted to create. He didn't say, play this this way, play this way. He basically gave you a scenario and said, I want what you play to invoke this particular feeling. So what was that experience? Yeah, well, he's, when he first started to uh, tell us that, that it was about a boat, a fish, you know, a boat, I, I started to come up with this, like, uh, uh, Jimmy Buffett type of mm -hmm. tropical <laughs> drinks and stuff like that. And he said, no, 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 we're in the wrong water. You're in the wrong <laughs> water. We're in the northeast. The water's dark. It's cold. Big waves. You know, I, I need the boat to be crashing down, and, and, and it's a diesel engine fishing boat. You know, so the, the toms are like the boom going up in the waves and coming down slamming boom you know and i remember as a kid listening to the boats go fishing in the morning and their diesel engine would, would putt you know putter so the snare drum would give you that sound so you had the waves and the, and the thing and because the song you have to put a little two and four in there you know so it, it, it created that that boat that he wanted you know so that that was fun to do that was a lot of fun to do. And the other track on that one that I particularly love is I Go to Extremes, which is just mm -hmm. a straight ahead rock and roll masterpiece. And it's one of those songs that whenever I hear that, it just it makes me smile because you're hitting pretty hard on that track. And that's very much got that kind of, you know, back in the rock and roll days kind of kind of edge to them. So it's just it's, it's exciting to hear you play like that again. Well, it's funny because um, I, I told him, I said, Billy, why don't you write a song with this kind of beat? And I, I was playing boom, ba, boom, 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 boom. So when he came in with the song, I go to extremes, he had in his phrasing that beat. Sometimes I'm tired. Sometimes I'm shot. Sometimes. But the beat didn't work now with the lyric. So I had to straighten it out you know, to make the lyric go flying by, you know? So that was fun. Probably going back, you know, easily 20 to 30 years ago now, I attended a drum clinic that you had given in Toronto. And I believe there's a bunch of other drummers uh, on the bill as well, too. And there's a couple of things that you had said that I found to be really inspiring and something that I think is is important that everyone re reflects upon and that is despite the successes that we may have in our lives and following our dreams there's always going to be sort of you know trials and and tribulations throughout that time and there's going to be times when you fall into that comparison trap where you will look at situations and say I will never be to the level of this person or I will never get the opportunities of these ones and you and you had started to doubt some of your capabilities. And one of the things that you had said in that clinic was, I was feeling down, I was questioning my abilities in comparison to, you know, all the things that you see in the drum magazines and all of these really impressive things. Right. And while you were doing that, you were sitting on your drum stool, looking out at a sold out crowd at Yankee Stadium. And at that point, you realized, you know, despite the fact that I will never be this particular drummer and this particular drum, there's obviously something that I'm doing that is true to myself that makes me have value. And so it's always important to not 
fallen on the trap of comparing yourself to others, but just valuing who you are and what you have to, to offer. And I think that was really profound. And I know for me that sometimes when I fall into those traps, which we all do, it's important to sit back and just look at the things that you have that make you special and unique you will never be as good of someone else as they are because you're right. not them. You have to be who you are and be the best that you can and just be passionate about that. And I just, I found that very profound and it's something that I have to keep referring back to. I will never get the opportunity to, to sit on a drum stool looking at amongst Yankee Stadium, but <laughs> I love the fact that even with all the success that you've had, you still have those challenges and those doubts at times. Yeah, I always tell people, I say, you know, I'm not really a drummer. I just play one on stage. You know, <laughs> of course, these other guys that you see, if those are real drummers, then I, I, I don't do that kind of stuff. But there's so many of us. If you look at the really successful guys that have been in bands that for years, you know, not just hired guns, they're, they're in bands. Larry Mullen is one of them. I mean, his the way he plays is so identifiable. Just the beginning of ba ba da ba 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 ba. Would would Dave Weckl have come up with that? I, I don't think so. You know, so and and Ringo's included in that too. Everybody dissed Ringo for the longest time because he doesn't do fancy stuff. I mean, his his solo on uh, Abbey Road is like. Everybody's doing it, but it's so great to listen to because it's it's Ringo, it's him, yeah. it's him playing him. Like like you said, it's you playing you. If you play you, great. Don't try. I have a friend that that was was taking lessons. Now he's in the one of the biggest bands around, and uh, he he started taking lessons. And and the teacher brought in um, uh, the Asia album and said, "Okay, we're going to play this Steve Gadd track." We're going to learn to be, play like Steve Gadd. And, and so he learned a part. And then the, the teacher said, okay, we're going to do this other song. And he said, wait a minute. You know what? I, I don't want to play like Steve Gadd. I want to play like me. <laughs> you know. So, and then he continued to play like him. And, and his band just took off. I've said this on other episodes of my podcast, but the trend now for many is to follow the path of putting out sort of cover videos of them playing along with, you know, songs that they love. And while there's a lot of value in that, and I am blown away by the quality and dedication of a lot of these performances that people put in, I would rather see someone be themselves so um or put on a song right. that you like and play it the way that you want to play it what would you change what what would make you what you know what would make it sort of special to you and i i think the trend a lot of times is too many times people are trying to just emulate their heroes exactly that's all part of the learning process right. but what you need to do is that you need to absorb you know, those influences and those experiences and make it your own because you'll never truly be comfortable walking in someone else's shoes unless you look at the journey that they've went and follow those paths in your own shoes in the way that you're meant to, to, to take it on your own. So 
in, you know, use music and use these influences to be inspired to be the best you that you can. And I think that's one of the things that I've always loved about your playing is that you sound like Liberty DeVito. Yes, we talked a lot about, you know, I can hear the influence from here. I can in hear the influence from there. But you never tried to sound like them. You were inspired by the things that right, they've right. done to create your own version of them that's still no. very much you. And I think that's an important thing that sometimes people forget. I said to Steve Gadd once, uh, he was doing a clinic, one of the first clinics he did uh, in a while. And we were back, I was backstage talking to him and uh, I, I, he was nervous. He was nervous to do his clinics. And I said, but you play so great. And he said, but everybody can play this stuff now. I said, but nobody plays it like Steve Gadd. That's the thing. You can hear somebody play 50 Ways to Lose Your Lover. You can hear them play that cowbell thing mm -hmm. that he does. But when he plays it, like, oh, my God, you know. It almost knocks you on the floor when he plays that stuff. And he tends to play the same sorts of things over and over again because it's him. He's, right. not, he's not trying to get out of his comfort zone. He's just trying to play music every time he sits behind the drums. And that doesn't mean that you need to be a master of all these different styles and, and different things. You, to this day, still have not mastered the buzz roll that your teacher had sort of said no. back in those early days. Put the sticks down, Liberty, because you're never going to get anywhere as a drummer playing at Yankee Stadium for a solo crowd that you probably have proven that you had something to offer that is some significance. I'm much more inspired by that than watching you put videos of a buzz roll on the internet. Um, because in the grand scheme of things, that's not the most important thing. Now, it that doesn't diminish those capabilities. Um, it all depends on the context of what music means to you and what it is that you have to offer. Right. Exactly. Back in 2020, you released your autobiography, Liberty, Life, Billy, and the Pursuit of Happiness. I've read the book twice. It's brilliant. It goes into your life story in much greater detail than we talked about today. For anyone that's interested, pick up the book. It's absolutely worth it. And I believe you've actually put an audiobook version out already. But what was the inspiration behind the book? Well, I first started writing the book as a... Uh, um history a family history so my children i have four daughters and my children would know where the, my grandparents came from italy where they came here and what my dad did in world war ii all that kind of stuff and when i parted ways with billy i thought oh i'm gonna write about what it was like to be with billy for 30 years you know so what what i did though instead of throwing people under the bus which a lot of guys do i, I don't do that you know so my thought was, let me put on Billy's shoes and let me look at Billy's career from standing in his shoes and why he does what he does. He doesn't mean to hurt people, but it, the man has had a career for 50 years. You have to change. If you don't change, you become stagnant and you're stuck in the place and you will eventually fall to the wayside. You know, so sometimes it takes replacing people to, you know, to, to move on. So I looked at the book in, the, in that way, you know, like what, what, it starts out, why did he do this to me? Why did we, we part ways? Why did, and then, then it goes into like, well, he's been successful for so long and he changes in every record changed. 
and and uh, sometimes the personnel has to change, you know. So, you know, uh, and we had a bad falling out for 15 years. We didn't talk to each other. And then after I, I wrote the book, it wasn't out yet, but I, I uh, was laying in bed. I had my knee replaced, my right knee. And for a while, I thought my career was over because it was one of the most painful things that I did. And uh, I thought, you know, started playing again and started playing with the Lords of 52nd Street. That's the band uh, that I play with now, Richie Kanata and Russell Javers. And they, uh, we got the name from the, uh, on the sleeve of the 52nd Street album, Thoreau Mullen called us the Lords of 52nd Street. And when he listed us as the players and I was learning the songs and I was realizing, wow, it, it was good. It was great career. We did make some great music. So now I'm playing with the guys that I played with. I'm playing the songs that I love. The only thing that's missing is the guy that I looked at for 30 years in the studio and on the stage. I mean, eye to eye all the time. We laugh. We knew we were joking. You know, so I, I wrote him and I said, uh, you know, um, I was a little disappointed in the way we ended. And he wrote back immediately and said, so was I. And I uh, said, so let's let's have a meal together or something. And, just, and we had the meal together. We, we, we talked and we, we were like standing on a bridge with all the old stuff. Water was going under the bridge and we, and we weren't even concerned about the water because we were safe on the bridge. Mm-hmm. We talked about our kids. We talked about who's with us who's not with us anymore who, who you know that kind of thing and the great thing was is that we're getting older he's going to wind it down eventually and i'm very happy where i am now you know so i didn't want the gig back he's going to wind it down at one point and you know so we're friends it, it was just a two friends meeting which is actually kind of a nice bookend because you had come from two different bands, you merged together, you developed this amazing friendship, you had led this amazing career, had this amazing life and these incredible experiences, then paths went in separate ways. There was, you know, animosity, misunderstanding, and then eventually it comes back to people and it comes back to that friendship. And what I loved about the book is you never talk about all of the challenges and all of the disagreements that because that is something between the two of you and i think that's one of the things that i think was incredibly beautiful about that it was the book was about the experiences yes you talked about anger and you talked about joy and you talked about you know the highs and the lows of all of the things but all of the other stuff that's a story for the two of you to share and the fact that you're able to overcome that and come back together and rebuild this friendship which is has been so essential to your career and your life for so long i think is a as a testament to the character that you are and um to the perspectives that you have now sort of later in life, because the things that are important now are very different than the things that were important back then. So if you look at your life now, what are the biggest joys in your life these days? Well, my daughters, I love them. I love them all. Um, I I have a six year old now, you know, uh, which is great because when my other daughters who are in their forties, like thirties or forties now, uh, when they were born, we were making an album going on the road, making an album going on the road. So I missed a lot. And I see it now in this younger girl, right? May is her name. And uh, I'm really excited to, to be able to, 
to see this. You know, you can have kids and not know what what goes on and be absent from them, but then but to be with them is great. So I get not playing with Billy. I have more time at home. <laughs> you know, the, the Lords of Fifty Second Street. We play. We go out for a couple of days and come home again. You know, it's it's that kind of thing. And so I love that. I love my girls. Love uh, the, the fact that me and Richie and Russell are playing together again in the Lords of 52nd Street, doing those songs. Uh, people love us. We played uh, Saturday night, and, and people were like, this, this is one of the best shows I've ever seen, you know. So, and then you get to, to hear the parts, what we did on the record. You know, as most people think that Billy walked in the studio and told us what to do or created these things and told me what to play. No, it wasn't like that. This is us. This is our sound that we are the Billy Joel sound, you know. And I have another band called the Slim Kings. We just were writing a song today, which allows me to express myself in, in lyrics and chords and, and different uh, beats and stuff. And it's with the younger guys. Uh, so I'm the old school guy. And the thing that connects us is if they, they'll come in and play a, a hip hop song or an R&B song. And I'll say, we want to do a groove like this. And I'll say, oh, psh, they sampled the Motown record, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, uh, you know, you know it, it, it's a connection that's great because, you know, it's hard to write lyrics when you're at this age because uh, you, you got kind of, Billy wrote a song called Shades of Grey. It's on the, on the, um, uh, River, which I think is the last the last song you ever recorded on a record with right. Billy Joel and, uh, on the River of Dreams. Right, album. and he he talks about how you know uh, things are more clear with the vision of youth. You know, it's either black and white. Where you get older, it's like, yeah, I, I like uh, I like uh, bacon, but you know, it's not good for my cholesterol, so I'm not gonna. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You have that kind of attitude, yeah. so. With these younger guys, they still have that like black and white thing, you know? So in closing, looking back over your career and all the lessons that you've had, what advice would you give to up and coming musicians who are kind of just seeking some guidance from someone that's been through the, you know, the whole living the dream? If you get into a situation like I did, you know, with the success and everything like that. Spending a thousand dollars on having a lawyer read a contract could be worth millions to you. That's where I failed <laughs> badly. But yeah, it's very important to have uh, someone else read the deals that you're making because you trust these people. They've been your friends since you were young and, and you're playing together. And, and what you're doing is making the music. You can't be concerned with contracts. You can't be concerned with, you know, other people are doing so many things uh, that, that are, are uh, booking the bands and, and managing the bands and stuff like that. So you don't read the contracts. You think like, oh, everything's going to be cool. You know, they, but they word things, lawyers word things that, can screw you over. And if you don't have a lawyer look at things and they say, well, I don't like this word. They can change this word and you can make a lot of money in the future. You know, so mm -hmm. get a lawyer, get a good one. Emotions can cloud the perception of business. So I think that's a, that's a great piece of advice. Yes. And, and always remember that it's easy to put a band together. 
but it's almost impossible to keep them together. Absolutely. I think that's a great place to end. Liberty, it has been an absolute joy and a pleasure for me to be able to connect with you like this. Like I said, 12-year-old me, in a way, is reflecting back to sitting in my practice room, playing along with these records and the inspiration that I got from the parts that you have played for these albums that have been so iconic for me over the years has really just inspired my own journey as a drummer and um, continues to bring me joy. Well, you see, you see, you see I, I can relate to that because uh, when I met Ringo, the 12-year-old me was meeting <laughs> this guy that you know changed my life. So yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure. I wish you all the best, and I hope that we get a chance to connect again, hopefully in person one day. Well, thank you so much, Michael. It was great. You've been listening to the Drummer's Pathway Podcast. Please share and subscribe to get the word out, and let's keep the discussion going. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.